welcome to another fabulous edition of the happy hour my name is jonah paquette i am one of your co-hosts for this show and with me as always is supriya gill hi everyone and supriya we are recording this right in the throes of the holidays how how, how is your holiday season going so far Uh, it's going great it's sneaking up very quickly which is awesome and means i have a lot to get done quickly (laughs) how about for you well, what's not as awesome, and of course, by the time you listen to this, listeners, I will probably be on the other side of that coin, but I'm still in the throes of trying to figure out what gifts to get everybody. You know, I, I, I love that process, but it's felt overwhelming at times. So, you know, I got to figure out if any of you listeners have good ideas on what to get people for gifts, you know, send, the, send those ideas my way out there on social media. But hopefully I survive that process and get everybody something nice. Other than that, we are recording here on a rainy day here in Northern California, Supreme, at least in my neck of the woods. But well, we got a great show ahead of uh, ahead of us today with Natalie Kogan, and Natalie is somebody who I have known actually kind of in different ways. On, on as you'll hear, listeners, on both a professional as well as a personal level. But Natalie is an incredible uh, speaker, incredible writer, and a really, really fascinating as you'll hear personal story. How she got to where she was very unorthodox path compared to some of the you know researchers and writers that we've had on the show. Really started off much more in corporate America hit the wall a few times there, struggled with severe burnout, as she very openly discusses. And then we talk a lot about how she got out of that, how she sort of discovered different ways of being and doing and overcoming that, now sharing that gift with audiences literally from all around the world. And her speaking and her writing is uh, pretty cool to hear. So tell, tell our listeners a little bit more about, uh, about Natalie. Yeah. So Natalie is a leading expert in emotional fitness and leadership. She's an entrepreneur best-selling author, and keynote speaker on a mission to activate awesome humans to struggle less, thrive more, and unlock true success by sharing their unique gifts in the service of others. Natalie went on to reach the highest levels of career success at McKinsey and Microsoft as a managing director at a venture capitalist fund and founder of an or executive at five startups and tech companies. After years of chasing a non-existent state of nirvana, She suffered a debilitating burnout that led her to find a new way to live and work. Today, she is a sought-after international keynote speaker and has appeared in hundreds of media outlets, including the Wall Street Journal, Harvard Business Review, New York Times, TEDx Boston, and SXSW. She is the author of Happier Now, The Awesome Project, and The Awesome Human Journal, and hosts the awesome human podcast that people call their best self hour. So we have a great conversation in store with you today with Natalie. We cover a lot of really fascinating areas and ground with her. So stay tuned right after this brief interlude, and it'll be our conversation with the wonderful Natalie Kogan. Thanks so much. Welcome to the happy hour, Natalie Kogan. We are so grateful to have you with us. Thanks for having me. Super excited to be here with you guys. Well, if you're excited, let me tell you, I've been extremely excited for this conversation. Supriya, you've been victim to my excitement. <laughs> I have. It, it was actually contagious, so I'm pretty excited too. You're excited by so- <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> it's a bit of, of excitement. So let's, we're going to get into a lot of amazing, I think, areas with you today, Natalie. I'm a big fan of your work, you as a person, your books, which we're going to get into all three of them, safe to say. Mm-hmm. It's growing. The <laughs> collection is growing. <laughs> uh, so we want to hear all of that. But 
Before we do that, Supriya, you know that I, I love to get into random things. I could spend all day just BSing about who knows what with you. And so she gives me one freebie, like one random question per episode that has nothing to do with it. I love it. it. But, but actually, it does have something to do with it today. Because you, in addition to your amazing speaking, writing, all the contributions that you have to the field, you are a somewhat later, more recently in life, like have become an artist, which mm. is so amazing. And I want to hear about that journey too in the process. But, you know, my father was an artist, you're an artist. I'm curious, like, if there is a piece of art, not your own, that at some point in life, whether it's a visual art, painting, mm. or poem, that like touched your soul that you feel like has changed your life for the better somewhere along the mm. way. That's a really great and tough question. And tough because there's too many to choose from. So I'm going to slightly edge out of it and... um I'm going to do, you know, what media trainers tell you. Ignore the question. Just give your answer. Well, let me tell you about my business. No, I don't know if there's a single painting, but there is an artist. And it's an artist. He's uh, quite famous, but uh, I find not a lot of people know him as many people as like Picasso. So his name is Amadeo Modigliani. He is one of the greats. He's an Italian artist. He was in Paris with Picasso and the greats at that time. And for everyone listening, you've probably seen his art. It's a lot. It's women with very elongated features. So elongated necks, elongated faces. He is my favorite painter. And I remember, I actually don't remember where, but I remember it might have been at the museum, the um, art museum in Philadelphia. But don't quote me on that. It could be in New York. Where I saw a couple of his paintings and it was love at first sight. I mean, I love Picasso, I love Van Gogh, I love Matisse, I love a lot of other artists. Mm. But when I saw Modigliani, there was just something, uh, and, and it isn't something I can even articulate. It is something with the colors and the eye expressions and the women, mostly women in his paintings, he does paint men. And so Modigliani was my gateway drug. Uh, for sure, uh, into art. But as you mentioned, Jonah, I have always loved art. When I grew up in Russia, um, we took class trips to the Hermitage uh, once a month. That was compulsory. One of the things I love about Russian education is that it was all fully rounded. So you were expected part of education was going to the opera, to the theater, to the museum. It wasn't optional. It was not culture. It was education. So we'd go to the Hermitage, you know, um, as I like to say, my, my, we didn't have a lot of food in Russia, but there was a lot of art and culture. My mother's a pianist. My dad was an actor in addition to being a polymer physicist. So I'd always was surrounded by art. And so I, I've always loved art, but Modigliani sort of took my heart, remains my number one. Um, I didn't start painting until many years later, uh, six years ago after I went through my burnout. But I do want to mention, since you got a freebie extra, um, I recently was at a, a gala uh, that was raising money for ALS. And there was this, all these people that we were meeting that we didn't know. And this gentleman is a scientist. He said to me at the end of the evening, he said, I realize who you remind me of. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. He said, you remind me of a Modigliani painting. And I was like, I think I need to die right now. <laughs> That's it. I That's mean, it. I'm not sure there's anything else. So yeah, just, there we go. Just, that was it. I love it. Well, thanks for sharing that. I didn't it. even ask why. I did not want to know <laughs> any more details. I just was like, that's it. Life is, I've achieved the great, I've achieved the dream I didn't know I had. 
<laughs> it was complete at that point. Right. You could have just dropped the mic and walked away. Then you would have been I mean, done. I just think that was, I don't know how I'm ever going to beat that in my life. <laughs> You'll beat it today, hanging out with us. There we go. Nice <laughs> answer. I love it. Well, you mentioned something that I think maybe is a good place to start, Annie, which is, you know, you have done such amazing work through your writing, through your speaking, through your online, you know, your, the companies you create. We want to hear all about this. But you mentioned your struggles with burnout and kind of emerging mm. from that on a personal level as really like a catalyst for you to become this incredible figure in the field of positive psychology, well-being, and, and through your work. Can you walk us through a little bit about sort of where you found yourself those years ago and sort of what emerged from there and how that has sort of created who you are today? Yeah, of course. And I'll try to do all this in, you know, two to three minutes. Um, I'm just kidding. I am actually going to try to not go on, but um, that is kind of my entire, that, that's it right there in a nutshell. So, you know, I, um, I, I never imagined that this is what I would be doing with my life that, you know, the way that when people ask me, what do you do? I say, I help awesome humans thrive. That is, that was not what I thought I'd be doing. I'm not sure I knew what I was going to be doing. But something, you know, I thought I'd be a successful entrepreneur in business and tech, and that was where I spent 20 years of my career. You know, I mentioned that I came as a refugee with my parents when I was a teenager. Um, and I, I think it's important to mention because it was an experience that's still an experience of my life. I think if you're a refugee, it's not an event. It's just who you are. But it kind of, it was so challenging and difficult that instilled in me this idea that if you're going to be successful, you have to suffer. And I used to think I was very unique with this, and I've realized I am not. It's actually a very common, um, I think it's one of the largest things that's contributing to our widespread burnout is we believe that we need to struggle in order to become successful. So mm. that's what I did. I not just worked and overworked, but I was incredibly critical of myself. I, you know, basic needs like sleep or rest, huh, that was for stupid people or lazy people or people who achieved everything, definitely not for me. And, you know, I kind of had this mindset, I had a story I believed about myself that I'm alone against the world that just sort of, you know, it's me up a hill, everything has got to be a struggle. And I say this because there were many things that led to my eventual burnout, but that was actually the biggest one. I think one of the mistakes we make is we think too much work leads to burnout. It is one of the contributors, but most often it's something else. Um, and for me, it was the way that I treated myself, but also the story that I believed. And so seven years ago, I found myself as a founder and CEO of a company called Happier, which had at the time, it's a very different company now, but at the time we had the largest gratitude sharing app that was helping hundreds of thousands of people live happier lives. So the irony there, I found myself in a place where I just could no longer push through. I had always relied on that ability to just, no matter how much I'm struggling, I'm going to tough it out. And I just couldn't. I, and it was very scary and very strange. And I had a lot of shame about it because I failed. I failed as an entrepreneur, as a person, as a leader, as a tough cookie, as a superwoman, I failed. And, you know, I think burnout can be can be experienced differently for different people. I think I was burning out on a daily basis for years before I reached this point of kind of no return. And I, you know, I do in my awesome human project book, I do talk about daily burnout because I want people to recognize that burnout can also be on a daily basis. And hopefully if you can become aware on a daily basis, and we can talk about how you can do that, that you don't have to get to this point where I got to where I just, I just couldn't keep going. It was very scary. I mean, I was a mom of a 10 year old, 12 year old, 
um, I could hardly function. That's very scary as a parent. And to also witness yourself being kind of a, you know, not able to be present. And I had failed my team and I'd failed this company and I had to lay off my team and go to my investors and say, we're done. Like I, I'm not okay. And my company was suffering because it turns out when you're struggling all the time, you can't make good decisions. You can't listen to other people. You know, we treat in our society, we treat it's either well-being or success. And I'm on this pedestal saying we're like the risen platform that I just want everyone to know. It's actually when you don't have well-being, you suck at what you do. And that was me. And then I went on this journey, not gracefully, not with any idea where I was going, but I, I did, you know, I did want to make it through. I didn't know what to do. I, I had no idea that there was a different way to live, but I, I just started reading things and opening up to things that I'd never considered before, including things like research on well-being and emotional fitness and all kinds of things. But also, you know, for the first time in my life, I had kind of opened up to a spiritual side of me and I started doing things that, oh my God, just felt good. Crazy idea, you know, like painting. No, I mean, to me, it was a crazy idea. Why would you do something that just feels good? Like, what is the point, Natalie? So to me, I'm glad you both laughed. <laughs> but actually, I don't think I'm unique. I have I work with high achievers all the time who think it is an absurd waste of time to do something if you're not going to get good at it or you're not going to sell it or you're not going to make it part of your career. And it, it was a, I mean, it was it was rough. It was a rough few years. But not only did I make it out, but I, in the process, because I am, I think, a natural teacher, I think it took me a long time to figure that out. I realized that I kind of created a method for myself to recover and not just recover, but get to a much better place where I feel I felt that I was now aligned with my unique gifts. My unique gift is not being a CEO of a tech company. That is somebody else's. That was also, I, I do want to mention, I think that's another giant cause of my burnout and for many others, when you're doing work that is not aligned with your natural gifts. Mm -hmm. I'm not, that's not my natural gift to build a tech product. Um, or to run a team. I was pretty decent at it. I was not great at it. But I was always playing kind of with my inner B players, the bench guys, because I wasn't bringing my best because it's, those weren't my gifts. My gifts are teaching and speaking and writing and elevating people and really like seeing the best in people and helping them bring that out. So when I emerged and was ready to kind of take a step, I said, this is what I'm going to do. And let me teach what I've learned to others. And that's where, you know, my first book came happier now came out and I started to speak and well, that's what I've been doing for six years now. That's yeah, Natalie. I mean, I really appreciate you sharing that and, and also just in that sharing underscoring how multifaceted burnout can be. We mm. often think of it as, you know, just too much work equals burnout, but there's so much more to it. And I, I'm wondering too, you touched on kind of daily burnout versus somewhere in your work, you call it big kahuna burnout. Can you mm. <laughs> differentiate a bit between what those look like? Yes. I think that it's a really great question because I think that's really important. So the big kahuna burnout for me, and I do think for many people, it took form of, I, I simply just couldn't keep going. Like I had nothing more to give. I couldn't hold a team meeting anymore. I couldn't make decisions. And I actually had to like stop my life. I had to lay off my team and pause my company. And like, that's the big kahuna where I just wasn't able physically, mentally, or emotionally, I just wasn't able to go through my days. The daily burnout, I think, looks a little bit different. You know, three, three most common symptoms of burnout are uh, feeling completely empty of all capacity and energy at the end of the day. 
And I think we've all experienced that. Second is resenting work you otherwise really love and care about. That was absolutely true for me. I actually remember this for a couple of years as I was running this company I started called Happier. Like I love it. I'm I I started it with, you know, with my co-founders because this is what I wanted to do. I mean, talk about it. it wasn't just passion, it was my whole being. But I remember I just dreaded every day and I hated that. And that's actually, you know, a little like neuroscience segue. That's actually the brain's way to try to protect me. So if you're resenting work that you otherwise love, that's your brain's way to pull you back because you're you're you don't have the capacity. And the third uh, really common symptom that I have very much experienced is just constantly feeling completely incompetent. And I don't mean like a healthy dose of self doubt, which is completely human. I just mean like I cannot handle what I have to handle today. I can't do it. Mm. And those are three things that I experience for a long time on a daily basis. And I mention them because they are three really common symptoms of burnout. So if you're listening to this, and again, we all have tough weeks when we have nothing left to give, normal. We all have those moments where we like hate our colleague or resent our boss, human. But I'm talking about if you're experiencing these three things on an ongoing basis consistently, that is a giant red flag because those are symptoms of you burning out on a daily basis. And you know, I often say, tell people, like, the reason I do what I do is I want to catch people before the big kahuna. Like, I want to catch people. I want to help them have the awareness and then knowing how to shift when it's on a daily basis, because then it's a lot easier to shift because it took me years to just be functional again. Um, and mm. we, don't, we don't have to go there. Mm. I love your story of emerging from that and realizing your gift as a teacher. Mm. And I will just give a plug all listeners, like go check out little clips of Natalie's talks in like on YouTube and whether it's your amazing TED talk that you gave or any others, because I think gift as a teacher doesn't even begin to describe it. You're, oh, John, uh, you're very kind. <laughs> you're an incredible speaker. Someone I look up to, obviously listeners know that I do some, some little bit of speaking as well, but like you are top of your craft. So walk us through though. I mean, between your speaking and your writing, you have reached so many people in so many mm. ways maybe you wouldn't have in the past when you were a tech CEO about these questions of emotion, of, of emotional fitness, of, mm. of happiness. And I wonder if maybe even like defining or describing how you think of those, uh, how you mm -hmm. mean those for listeners, what do we mean when we say emotional fitness? What do we mean when we yeah. say they overlap? Yeah. They yeah. Great question. You know, so emotional fitness was actually a concept that I, kind of solidified for myself when I was working on my second book, The Awesome Human Project, which is all about breaking free from burnout. Because I realized I kind of, it, it took me a while, actually. But I, I kept asking myself the question, what changed? Like, what changed for me? Because my life is still challenging. I'm a human being. Like, what changed for me after the, why am I living things differently now? Why do I feel differently? Because my life is still challenging, like all of yours. I'm still running my own business. In some ways, it's a harder business. I am my own brand. That's pretty difficult to do. All kinds of things. You know, I have the mortgage and the house responsibilities and a kid and a marriage and all the things. But I am fundamentally different. So I kept asking myself, what was it that changed? And I realized that what changed was my relationship with myself. And because that relationship became one that is supportive, I am now able to handle challenges with a lot less struggle. And that's where for me, so my definition of emotional fitness is your ability to handle life's challenges with less struggle mm -hmm. by creating a more supportive relationship with yourself. And so externally, 
my life kind of looks very similar. I mean, I do different things, but my life looks really similar. I work a ton. I have literally am living in the same house. I have the same responsibilities. Like, but internally, I am in a very supportive and caring relationship with myself and my relationship with myself used to be really toxic. I mean, I was my own harshest critic. I never supported myself. Whenever I didn't do something as I thought I should, which was all the time, I kind of made life harder for me. And so that kind of got to the core of the shift that I made as I assumed, I mentioned at the beginning that, you know, in order to be successful and do meaningful things in life, I had to struggle. The difference is, so it's like correction of earlier Natalie challenge in life is constant. In order to be successful, in order to do anything meaningful, you there's going to be a lot of challenges. But struggle is optional because struggle is something you experience internally. It's your internal experience of a challenge. And when you improve your emotional fitness, which means you honor your different emotions, you choose more productive thoughts, you practice self-care, you practice gratitude, all kinds of things, you create a more supportive relationship with yourself, you can handle those challenges with less struggle. And less struggle doesn't just feel better, which it does, and that's wonderful. Less struggle also means you have a lot more capacity to actually put forward and share with the world. So instead of using your emotional, intellectual, mental, physical capacity on the inner struggle, you actually have that to figure out what to do with this challenge or how to move forward. And that's where the concept came for me is I realized that's what changed. I am in a supportive relationship with myself. So I'm able to handle challenges with greater emotional fitness, with greater resilience. And the way that I think it relates to happiness is I think that emotional fitness is a core ingredient in happiness. In other, in other words, I don't think it is possible to experience happiness and well-being if you don't have a supportive relationship with yourself, if you don't know how to handle challenges with less struggle, because challenge is kind of the given in life. You know, that's kind of, that's the deal. Mm-hmm. So Natalie, I, you know, so much of that resonates with me. And, you know, you mentioned a few times now this idea that you told yourself and, you know, part of this is social learning in terms of your early experience, that struggle is required for success, essentially. That is how you equated it. And I think I think about now and how in our culture, overworking is glamorized and there mm-hmm. is this push, right? And And in a lot of workplaces, there's pushes to do more for workplace well-being, and it doesn't exactly equate to outcomes that are supporting. So I'm curious about your thoughts on that in in terms of how that might play into what someone might be experiencing and the messages that we're receiving on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, you know... it's The thing I just want to acknowledge off the top, it's not easy, right? So you know, burnout is not just an individual issue, right? And I talk a lot about this in my talks and my work, where you work, how your leader is, how your boss is, what the culture is. Of course, it impacts absolutely 100%. But there are parts that you do control. And so to me, it's recognizing that and focusing on those, right? You cannot change. No single individual listening to this can change our culture. And no single individual can like go ahead and change their organization. But asking yourself, what are the choices that within my that are within my control? And that's where I go back to my your relationship with yourself, because that is mm-hmm. within your control. And you know, it's interesting when I talk about this, a lot of people don't want to hear it. Because I think in some ways it's easier to just kind of, you know, talk, you know, complain about our society and overworking and what my company is doing wrong. And I think it's important to acknowledge things, but just complaining about that 
help you feel better. No. And so I am a pragmatist. Hmm. And my question is always, what are things that are within your control? And immediately things that, you know, my suggestion is like, and that's the choice that I made, how you treat yourself is within your control. How you talk to yourself is within your control. How you treat your emotions is within your control. How you do things outside of work is within your control. You know, one of my favorite studies, I think it was published in the last couple of years, they, they went into a, um, a hospital center and they looked at ICU nurses, right? I mean, we can all acknowledge probably for every listener, unless you're an ICU nurse or doctor, all of our jobs are not as stressful, right? So this is like incredibly stressful jobs. And some of the nurses burnt out and some of them didn't. And they did kind of the same similar work. And so to understand what happened, the researchers would just talk to the nurses. And it turned out that a giant factor was what the nurses did when they were done with work. So when they were done with their shift and the nurses who burnt out would say, you know, I keep thinking about work or I bring files home, they kept working. And the nurses who didn't burn out, they said, you know, when I got home, I was really intentional, like do something for me, crochet, go running, hang out with my family, cook. Think about that. Same workplace, same culture, same bosses, same job, same stresses, same challenges. So we can't say it's all the work environment. We can't say if you're a nurse in ICU, you're going to burn out because some don't. And so I love that study because to me, it kind of illuminates this um, availability of choices that we can't control at all, but we can all make choices about things we can control. And that's where, you know, again, I'm a pragmatist. That's where I like to focus people because none of us can change society. But if all of us focus on that, if all of us choose the things we can control and we improve them, that's how we change. I love that. Yeah. Uh, it, it reminds me of a couple of things. One is just, first off, the great Victor Frankl, who I feel like every other episode, so talk about, <laughs> he talks about like, I mean, why only every other Jonah? I mean, Victor Frankl, <laughs> I think, deserves to be in every episode. I'm a little bit upset that it's every other now that I've learned about this. <laughs> We're going to try to make it every episode from now on. I think so. I mean, that's my vote. Given I have three copies of Man's Search for Meaning, and they're in three different rooms in our house. And uh, I remember, um, and we're actually in the process uh, of moving from our house to an apartment in the city. We're doing that whole thing where our daughter is in college. Um, and so we're cleaning things up. And so I'm making piles. And Joe and I totally interrupted you, but hopefully no, in a good way. Um, so, you know, we're cleaning things up and I'm a big declutter. Like I don't like any extra stuff. So Avi, my husband, we were looking at books and I was like, Avi, all these books, like you got to get rid of, we don't even know what they are. And then I was like, I looked over and I was like, yeah, I have three copies of man's search for meaning and I have no <laughs> rational reason, but I can't get rid of them. So that's the end. And Avi sort of looked at me like, mm. <laughs> anyway, so I feel like Victor Frankel every episode. Done every episode, episode. and you interrupt away because the listeners are here to listen to you, Natalie. They're not here to hear, hear me bloviate about things today. <laughs> but the other thing, so not only does it remind me of Victor Frankl and like the importance of even if one percent of a situation is all that we've got in our control, it's like focusing on that one percent is often a lot more fruitful than focusing on all the other things that we can complain about, even if they're valid complaints. The other thing is a little bit lighter, which is I was watching an Animal Planet show recently, Supriya, where a lioness goes after a gazelle. And as soon as the gazelle got away, the gazelle starts grazing on grass and the lion just goes to sleep like five seconds later. And I turned to my wife and I said, I wish I was a little more like them sometimes instead of like ruminating about things and worrying about things because so much suffering comes as a result of like, not what is happening right in front of me, 
but where my mind is taking me. And every time I think about, dwell on, replay, relive, it's as if I'm experiencing that lousy thing 500 times as opposed totally. to... So I got to be... Yeah, what's that? Um, this totally reminds me. And let me just think. Oh, likewise. Yes, thank you. Oh my God. So I love when Jonah can read my mind. I'm the worst with proper names. Yes, like why zebras don't have ulcers. Robert Sapolsky, right? Like that's the whole thing. Zebras don't sit around and like, wow, there's not enough trees in this pasture. (laughs) Or like, you know, when I went after that prey, that was really annoying. They don't do that. And we do do that. And again, to me, this idea of what is within my sphere of control, it's probably one of the most important questions to ask yourself. Because there's always something. And then there's always, and then the next question is like, what's, um, I, I, again, I'm a pragmatist. Like, what is one thing I can do that is within my sphere of control to support myself? That's it. That's yeah. the question. And if you ask yourself this question every day, it yeah. will make a giant difference because it turns out also, can we just bring back Robert Sapolsky because another <laughs> idol, right? And you guys, I'm sure, are familiar with this, but he, I, I learned this from him that. When it comes to, for example, reducing stress, it matters. 80% is just deciding to do something to reduce Mm -hmm. your stress. The thing you do really doesn't matter. So you could be like, okay, so I'm going to eat eight almonds and do 19 jumping jacks and then like run around my house and sing ABBA songs. Hey, there's Jonah with almonds, right? (laughs) So you could just make a random thing. And when you do that thing, you will feel less stressed because again, we know the placebo effect. We know the brain is plastic. But again, it's also because you're taking control. And we all know that having a sense of control is a giant part of resilience, giant part of feeling better, giant part of avoiding burnout. So now we've brought two giants into our conversation. And Modigliani, that's three. This is the best podcast ever. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think think the locus of control is so important. and And I think that we tend to get away from that, especially when we go into this place of blaming the organization or blaming the other, whatever that might be. And it takes away from our ability to anchor ourselves in what we can do. And, and that leads me to, to my next question, Natalie, is, is what are your thoughts or guidance around developing daily anchors? Mm. So um, just this idea of daily anchors that you mentioned. Um, so I write about it in my book, Happier Now, because that's kind of where I got to. So as I began my journey out of burnout, I again, I didn't really know this field, but I was reading things and I just sort of said, okay, every day I'm going to do three things to like help myself feel a little better. I didn't even call them anchors for a while. Eventually I did, and I'm going to tell you why. And I remember, and I kept a journal um, in a Google Doc for the entire first year of my recovery. And I wrote in it most days, not every day. I read it every year, um, at least once. It's a very humbling experience because I have a lot of compassion and pain for that, Natalie. But it's also very illuminating because I always just want to remember where I came from because these are the people that I want to help. And I remember, so every day I'd write like, here's the three things that I did. And there were very simple things like take a walk or sit on the couch. We have this little sunroom, like sit on the couch and read for 15 minutes. This was a giant thing for me. I'd never done that before because only lazy people did that, you know, or like meditate for five minutes. That's where painting came from. One day I was like, okay, I'm just gonna, let's do this crazy thing. But I remember how good it felt just to honor that daily commitment to myself. Like it almost didn't matter what the things were because I was now becoming the person who supports herself. 
And the way we change our story, right? The way that I change my story from I'm super critical of myself and I always struggle to I have a supportive relationship with myself. It wasn't changing the story. It was through the daily actions that I took. So month after month, every day I did something to support myself. Over time, I became a person who's in a supportive relationship with myself. We change our story with our actions. And so I started eventually calling them my daily anchors because I had this analogy that came to me that the way that I'd been before my burnout, and I think a lot of people relate to this, like I was like a small boat in the ocean of life. And when life was relatively okay, calm, I was kind of calm, you know? But then something would happen, aka normal life challenge. I had no anchor. So I would just spin around, you know, and I would take everybody else down with me, by the way. You know, my husband, my daughter, like when we struggle, we really share it with everybody around us. That's another reason we can talk about that. Like people talk about self care being selfish. I tell them, "Mm -mm, it's like your greatest responsibility to everyone else. So that's where the idea of daily anchors came from. And I still, have my daily anchors. I still do these daily practices. And I think that my invitation to all the listeners is just keep it really simple and realize that the greatest benefit is just identifying some things that you can do every day to support yourself and doing them. Like they don't have to be big things. And and actually the opposite is true. Like the small things you do consistently make a giant difference and you can stick with them longer. And so think of one or two things that feel good. Take a walk, do yoga paint, dance, I don't know, whatever the thing is, five to 10 minutes. The most important thing is you commit and you do them because it is that action. It's the fact that you stuck with yourself. That's how you become a more supportive person of yourself and build all the things we've just talked about. And it's been really gratifying. You know, I've had the honor of hearing from hundreds, thousands, probably people who do this now. And the thing that I hear from most of them that I just want to share is, you know, when you talked about this, I read it, like I was going to try it, but I just didn't think these little things would make any difference. You know, I'm really struggling and oh my God, they've made a giant difference. And I think that's a huge lesson that I learned um, that I do just want to like say really explicitly. I think when we feel burnt out or we're struggling, there's this tendency to think like we have to make like giant changes. Like I did. I think I write about this in my book. I was like, I think I need to just like run away and move to Nepal and meditate for 10 years. Like I just didn't like, I was like, I can't, I can't handle this life. So I just have to run away. I didn't run away to meditate in Nepal for 10 years. You don't have to do that. It's the tiny things that you do consistently that make a giant difference. Now, would I have to dance with people or could I? (laughs) You you really, I mean, you could stand (laughs) on your head. You could do anything you want. The only criteria is when you do it, it makes you feel good. That's it. And that's why, you know, like, not that we need to go into this, but, you know, when I talk to people about scrolling social media, I always say, like, there's nothing wrong with social media. I personally really love Instagram and LinkedIn. Like, it's how we use it. So, like, Mm -hmm. so because someone in the audience once said to me, like, oh, I love to look at pictures of dogs on my phone that really relaxes me. I'm like, fantastic. If you're doing it intentionally, if you're going on Instagram to look at pictures of cute dogs because it feels really good, you go, girl. Like that's one of your things. That's very different from like, oh my God, I'm so exhausted. Let me open Instagram and just scroll mindlessly for an hour. That actually increases stress and chance of burnout. So Jonah, so, it really doesn't matter what you do as long fact, as it feels the good. The accounts I follow on Instagram are cat accounts. <laughs> animal accounts in general. Lions, tigers, all that stuff is probably- Not to mention your own cat account. <laughs> I do have my own cat account. That's true. That Brilliant. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm the curator of the account. But, uh, <laughs> Fantastic. 
listeners, I'll, I'll, I'll share the, that account name <laughs> another, another time. Um, <laughs> it might be called the Beastie Bunch. But uh, Natalie, the other thing I want to mention is like you're first of all, two, two things I love about your work. I'll just say is like one, you approached this question of happiness and well being kind of as a little bit of a happiness skeptic. Oh yeah, <laughs> and I like that, actually because. You didn't just buy into these concepts wholesale. You did two things. One is like you, you you tested things out yourself, and then you also looked at the data. You looked at the evidence. Mm. You, you gathered all the research, and you put that into your book. On that note, like for listeners who are who are tuning in, like what 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 are some of the keys? I mean, you talk about them in terms of like the bigger why and that sense of meaning mm. by gratitude. But like, what do you see as some of the real key skills? Because I think. One of the encouraging things about you know your work in this field, really in general, is like the fact that this is something that is changeable, that is achievable, that is attainable. Mm. can actually do practical things to strengthen their well-being. And what, what do you see as like some of the, the biggest keys when it comes to what we can all do? Yeah, what what a great question. So I think at the very core, we have to begin with something we just talked about. You have to acknowledge that you have choices. I actually think that is a giant foundation. That no matter what is going on in your life, however difficult it is, however frustrating your work environment is, whatever it is that you do have choices and the choices have to do with how you treat your thoughts and your emotions. I think that is a giant kind of foundation. The second thing is awareness, emotional awareness. It's something I just did not have before, did not practice. You know, I was obviously aware when I was really stressed out and really drained or like really happy, but not in between. And so developing this kind of daily practice of just checking in with yourself, just like you check in with people you care about. You know, you meet a colleague or a friend, you're like, how are you? How often do you ask yourself how you are? Mm -hmm. So that to me is another foundational skill of just checking in with yourself because when you check in with yourself, that actually gives you opportunities to make the positive choices. If you never check in with yourself, if you don't realize, oh my God, I'm really drained, or oh my God, I can't stand my work. Why is that? I used to love my work, or whatever it is, then you you then you don't have an opportunity to shift. And I think part of that, just kind of in a, a very practical way, we all have tells of when we're really, really drained, when we're reaching our red line for the day. And getting to know what that tell is for you is very powerful. So one of my dear friends now, but we met because I was doing a lot of pro bono work uh, during the pandemic for hospitals. And she's a head of well-being for, um, head of Center for Physician Well-Being at Mass General. She's not my doctor. She's in my second book. A dear friend, Carrie Palomar is her name. And I remember when I, she was in my leadership training group and I was talking about this, she said, oh my God, I just figured it out. Whenever I eat peanut butter with a knife in the middle of the kitchen or out of a jar, that's my tell. She's like, because when I feel okay, I actually take out like I take out a plate and maybe a piece of bread and I sit down and like I enjoy peanut butter. But when I'm standing there like just like zoned out eating with an egg, she's like, that's my tell. And I love that because that's like an obvious tell. But we all have them. I become really snappy. I think that's a common one. Like I just snap at everything and everyone and like the littlest things set me off. But that comes from awareness. So I think awareness is a foundational emotional fitness skill that we just have to practice. And again, it's nothing giant. You just check in with yourself. Like, how am I feeling? How am I doing? And then you just acknowledge whatever comes up. Like, without judgment, that's the challenging part, you know, because we're all very good at telling ourselves, I shouldn't feel this way. Why do I feel this way? It's Sunday and it's sunny. Why do I feel like crap? Don't be like crap. You know, we're all very good at that. 
So just acknowledging and then saying, okay, well, it's Sunday and I feel like crap and I'm really drained. Okay. What's one thing I could do right now to support myself? There's that shift into action. So Mm -hmm. I think those are really important things. And I think, you know, um, I'm, one of my missions is to like rebrand self-care. I really hate how we talk of self-care as like, you know, like some luxury, like, oh, get a massage and, or whatever. And those are wonderful things. Like I'm all up for a massage. That is not self-care. So I define self-care as a skill of managing your energy, right? It's a skill of managing your emotional, mental, and physical energy. We all have a limited amount of energy and we use it all the time. So we need to refuel it and we need to do fewer things that unnecessarily drain it, like complaining. And so that to me is another foundational skill, right? As part of your check-in, as part of your awareness, like check-in, like, how am I feeling? Well, physically, I'm kind of drained, but I'm kind of excited about this project I'm working on, but I can't seem to focus. Okay, what's one thing I could do to support myself right now? Well, I should go take a walk and maybe I should take a nap or maybe I should take a break for 10 minutes because physically I'm really drained, right? So getting to know yourself gives you opportunities to then say like, I need to fuel my mental mental energy or my physical energy needs me now. So I think the skill of self-care is a skill of kind of managing and fueling your emotional, mental, and physical energy is another foundation. And then the, the last thing I'll mention is I think that we have to get serious about our joy. I think we've trivialized joy in our world. And I think that joy, it's, it's fuel. It's, it's fuel for life, right? And so we have to get really serious about practicing our joy. I think I used to wait for joy to hit me over the head. I think a lot of people still do. It's a practice, right? It's, it's a lot of people, you know, I, I started getting really surprised. I would do these workshops and people would tell me, I don't know what brings me joy. And I realized that was me. Like, I didn't really know. Like, yeah, being with my family, I love, but like, what else? And so I think treating joy as a practice, treating it as something as important to you and making time for it is a foundational skill. And um, for a lot of our overworked listeners, it may not be obvious. And I don't want you to judge yourself for that. I just want you to realize you need to allow yourself to explore and to think about like what brings you joy? What helps, what gives you that sense of aliveness or what used to, and maybe you've let it go. I love what you said about rebranding self-care. And I'm sure Jonah (laughs) agrees with me on that. It made me think of something you said earlier that I want to unpack a bit because it's something that I hear often with moms, especially new moms in terms Mm -hmm. of self-care being selfish. So Let's let's talk a little bit about about that and and how can we shift that? You you talk a little bit about rebranding it and giving yourself energy, but I'm mm. curious about what what you see and how you see people move away from that perspective. Yeah, it's the hardest one to break, and I am a mom, so I really this is firsthand experience. And two things really helps me, and this is what I offer not just to moms, but anyone who's like self-care, selfish, other people need me. Caretakers, I find it's caretakers in any capacity. So moms, teachers, nurses, people who are taking care of their elderly parents or relatives, like caretakers are really fantastic at denying themselves love and care because they're like, well, other people need me. So it's terrible to take care of myself. And so two things that I want to offer, because this is what helped me. The first is you cannot give what you don't have. You think you can, and maybe for a short while you can, but then you don't. And 
I saw this in my own experience. I talked about before one of the most painful parts of my burnout was realizing that I really couldn't give Mia the love and attention and care that I really wanted to. That's hard. That's awful. It wasn't because I didn't love her enough. It was because I didn't have anything to give. And I really want everyone listening to really hear this. You don't have unlimited capacity. No one does. I hate when we refer to people as superhuman. No one is superhuman. Everyone here is. Nobody has a cape. We're all human beings. And I want you to think about what you are like with your kids or people you're taking care of when you're exhausted and drained and resenting your life. What is it that you're bringing to them? Because, you know, just one tactical example, a practical example, you know, I used to, because I was working all the time, you know, like cooking me a homemade meals was like my one non-negotiable. Like Mia never had, I'm talking about like never even a Trader Joe's, like always home cooked, like complicated. And I have an amazing cook, but so like Sunday (laughs) evenings at like 10 PM after she went to bed, after I did more work, I would do this cooking marathon for the week because I couldn't get home in time to cook. So for the week, so like soups, entrees, like I cook for like five, six hours. And I remember like, I I was exhausted. I was like bone tired doing this, but I felt so good. Like I felt like a martyr. Like, look, I'm sacrificing myself to bring me out this healthy, wonderful food. Well, guess what else she was getting as a side dish? My snappiness, my stress, the dark cloud that I would bring everywhere I went. I only understand that in retrospect. And I say this not to judge myself. I have full compassion for myself. But please understand that there's like, there's no shortcut. If you are on empty and if you are ignoring yourself, you actually are not bringing the care and love that you want to bring. So that's like one thing I want to say. But the, the second thing is um, a more practical analogy. So I just want you to think of a car, right? Like we all know that a car, it needs gas or electricity to do its job of being a car. Okay. So I drive a Mini Cooper. Let's go with my car. It still takes gas. So like when my car is running low on gas, do I sit there and like say, I don't know, does my car deserve more gas? Has it done enough? To, no, I don't do that. That would be like psychotic behavior. No, <laughs> you don't do that. When your car is low on gas, you go and fill up the car because you know that your car needs gas to do its job of being a car. Well, you're a human being. Your energy is your fuel. You need it to do your job of being a mom, a caretaker, a teacher, a nurse, whoever you are. And so when you're feeling drained, the answer is not let me push through because my child needs me. The answer is I got to refuel so that I can be there for my child. And I think this is an important, and I and for a lot of people, when I share this, like it's such a simple analogy, but women, particularly moms, tell me like that was their breakthrough when they realized that. And the last thing I'll share, and this is, I mentioned Carrie Palomera. She was the one who kind of was the mirror for me of how powerful this was. I said, you know, because she, um, look, she's a doctor. She's a mom. Like she's real. She takes care of other doctors, like very much a caretaker full time. And I said, and she said, you know, Natalie, like, I understand everything you just said. You can't give what you don't have, the car analogy, but like, I'm still stuck because like, I go sit down to just like have a cup of tea and my brain is just like, other people need you. Your daughter needs you. Your patients Mm -hmm. need you. Your, I, how do I, what do I do? And I said, Carrie, I want you to get really honest. And I want you to ask yourself in your head, what is it that they need? Because do they need your short temper? Do they need your impatience? Do you need your inability to really listen and be present? That's not what they need. That's what they're going to get if you show up drained. But what is it that they really need? They really need you. They need your attention and your giving energy and your spark and your ability to help them. You can't give it to them unless you fuel yourself. And I, 
she said to me later, she said, Natalie, that was the breakthrough. And that's what she does now. And I offer this to our listeners. When you get that voice, like other people need me, I want you to get really honest and ask them, what is it that they're going to get if you show up without fueling yourself? And if you get really honest about that, if you're a parent or a caretaker, I promise you, if you can just be really honest about that, you will not feel guilty about taking care of yourself. I love that. Natalie, so you've been great. so generous with, with your time. Before we get to our lightning round, because we're going to have our <laughs> lightning round that we always have uh, presented by Pacific Gas and Electric. Uh, <laughs> we don't have any sponsors for the happy hour. Um, have, I love um, it. Awesome new book coming out because you've written Happier Now. Great book. Awesome human project. Awesome book in the literal sense, listeners. But you have the awesome human journal that is like hot off the press as we're recording. So tell listeners about that real quick. Yes. Thank you for asking. Um, so the Awesome Human Journal came out a few weeks ago, and it is a, a workbook. Um, so I think of it as a workbook. And it's your toolkit for the good days, the tough days, and every day in between. It is filled with templates and exercises and practices and daily practice pages and SOS practices for when you're really struggling and creativity breaks. And it's essentially the way that my highest purpose for it, it's it's your guidebook to become a better friend to yourself. And um, I illustrated the entire thing myself. It's written by hand and illustrated by me. And I really wanted to do it because I wanted to feel like it's from a good friend. Boy, that was challenging, but I'm really grateful that I did it. It's really simple to do and it's really simple to practice, but it is all the foundational things that we've just talked about in a workbook form, in a daily journal form, in a way that you don't have to think twice about how to practice this. It's all laid out for you. And when people ask me, so it is inspired by my book, The Awesome Human Project. It's about 80% new content. So you don't need the book. You can just do the journal. Uh, when people ask me, why did I want to do the journal? I have two answers. One is, you know, I'm all about, like I've used the word pragmatist a lot. I, I think the benefit is in the practice. We can know these ideas. We can know these concepts. You gain the benefits when you practice. And a lot of people would tell me, oh my God, I read your book. It's so great. I just haven't gotten to the practices. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to make a book that you 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 can't not practice because that's all you can do. So <laughs> I'm making, I'm, I've decided to make it impossible to not practice. That was my one reason. And that. the second is, I, um, and I'm really encouraged by the early feedback, I wanted it to be more widely available. So I wanted to get to the teenagers. I have a 19-year-old. They read books, but not always these kind of books. And so I wanted to make something that was really widely applicable. And I am hearing about a lot of moms buying this for their teenagers. I'm hearing about a lot of teenagers buying a couple copies for themselves and their friends. And that was my other reason. So it's really, you know, teenage up to 125. Those are my two big reasons to, to create it. Teens awesome. buying books. What a thought. Uh, <laughs> this book is the Awesome Human Journal. So we're going to have that in our show notes, folks. If you want to scroll down below, all listeners will have that. And then without further ado, we're going to jump on over to our lightning round real quick. Last Okay. So Natalie, we're going to shift over to maybe a personal question. So can you sure. tell us something that you're looking forward to right now on a personal level? Well, I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be very practical. I mentioned we um, are making a giant life change and moving to Boston. We live outside of Boston. We've lived in our house for 15 years. It is the longest house I've ever lived in. I moved around a lot given my background. And so we have found the apartment of our dreams and it's there. And we've just literally today, as I'm speaking to you guys, are putting our house on the market. So what I'm really looking forward to is a wonderful, smooth process by the end of which we'll be 
empty nester is not very empty because our lives are really full, but in a very different life um, in a more urban setting in, in the apartment in Boston. Haven't done that in a long time. Used to live in New York City. So this is not quite New York City, but back to urban living. Awesome. The next lightning round question is, what makes the Boston sports team so terrible? No, I'm just kidding. That, that, <laughs> you had your one question. <laughs> okay, I'm going to laugh right now because um, I have no idea about sports at all, like zero. Like, I don't even care because I don't know anything. However, I'm married to someone who grew up in Boston. Big so, fun. like, obsessed, right? So I'm just going to have to get back to you on that. But it might be like a seven-hour video after I ask Avi. I just so you know. <laughs> I have that all the time in the world. Um, no, the serious last question was, um, you've talked a lot about amazing tips for listeners. But like, what, what for you is like the most important thing that you do for your mm. own on an everyday level? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think the most important thing is you know, I take a walk every morning. I take a five mile walk. And that is one of my daily anchors. Sometimes it's highly unpleasant. Today was 30 degrees. So highly unpleasant, but I still really, I feel really good once I've done it. But that's a very practical thing. I think at the very core, the most important thing I do for myself every day is I, I choose to support myself. And I really mean this like very practically, like I just choose to support myself. And sometimes like I have days where I spend days in self-criticism or whatever, and it's not like I'm perfect about it, but I have the awareness. And so I always kind of have this place to come back to and be like, the thoughts that I'm thinking right now about myself, about whatever challenge I'm facing, are these helping me move through it with less struggle? And I always know the answer. And that's really, really powerful. And that I'd say is like at the very foundation of what helps me thrive a lot more than I used to. Thank you for that. And tell the listeners where they can find out more about your awesome, amazing work. It's easy. NatalieCogan.com, except I spell my name a little funky. It's N-A-T-A-L-Y-K-O-G-A-N. Uh, NatalieCogan.com. It has all the wonderful things we've talked about. I have a really um, a wonderful, actually, let's mention it because Jonah's going to be part of it. So I'm launching my first big course. is my signature course. I've been working on it for two years called the Emotional Fitness Boost Course. It's launching in January. Jonah is going to do a masterclass uh, with me for it about the power of awe. Um, so head over to nataliecogan.com. You can sign up on the wait list. I, I also have a really cool, completely free five-day emotional fitness challenge. It's totally free. Every day you get a little short video, one of the emotional fitness skills and how to practice it. It's beloved by me and everyone who's done it. So I invite you to that. And I'm Natalie Kogan on all the socials. Again, it's N-A-T-A-L-Y because I have to be different. Why not? <laughs> we're going to have all that information down below in the show notes, everybody. Natalie Kogan, it has been so great talking to you today. Thank you so much for joining the happy hour. And uh, we'll have to pester you to come on another time down the road sometime. Pester away. You guys are a joy. <laughs> you, you honor the name by making it so, your questions so thoughtful and the conversation so lively. Um, it's an honor. Thanks so much well, for having me. Thank thanks. you for being here. I feel happier. Thanks, Natalie. Mission accomplished. <laughs> <laughs> thanks so much. Thank you. 